Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 1. Now, I'd like you to actually just flip the page back. We're going to start with Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, because it's, well, I mean, the book of Leviticus is a separate book, but, but it's situated in the context of the Pentateuch. So when you understand what came just before it, you understand what's happening. After all, when you have a passage that begins, the, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, okay, what are we talking about here? Well, that's what we just heard at the end of, of chapter 40 of Exodus. So we'll start with Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Hear now the word of our God. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. My, my hunch is that most of us, when we started our goal of reading through the Bible and saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to start from Genesis and just go all the way through, the first time you got to the book of Leviticus, you were like, ah, boy, what do I do with this? What does Leviticus have to do with following Jesus? Everything. Michael Morales has an excellent book with an equally excellent title, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? 
the subtitle's not quite so great, but I mean, it's, it explains it. I mean, a biblical theology of the book of, of Leviticus. Um, but who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? He points out the, that Leviticus is all about how can man dwell with God? And how can man dwell with God is exactly the whole point of, well, everything. I mean, think back to the beginning of the Pentateuch, Genesis 1 through 3. Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence because of their rebellion. God is holy. How can sinners enter the presence of a holy God? Fast forward to Deuteronomy. Israel is about to enter the promised land. It's sort of a a new Eden. That's the way the, the promised land is presented. God is calling his people to dwell with him. But in order for them to dwell with him, they must be holy as I am holy, God says. And Leviticus sits right at the center of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Think of it this way. Genesis is talking about the holy seed. It's the promise of, well, children, what was the promise to Abraham? (laughs) The land and the seed and the blessing to the nations. That's what Genesis is setting up. Exodus, you think about the the conflict with Egypt, the the plagues in the desert, the the building of the tabernacle. And then Leviticus, dealing with sacrifices, cleanness, holiness. Numbers, ordering the camp, more desert plagues, and conflict with Midian. Actually, when you start looking at all these things, you start realizing, wait a second, there's a whole lot of dare I say chiasms, the whole Pentateuch is set up, all the five, the five books of Moses are struck. You know, what, what, this is where, you know, you, you, you may have heard of some of these, uh, you know, like, anybody ever heard of JEDP? It's a theory about, oh, there's all these different sources, and there's all, part of why they came up with those theories was because they operated through, in a, in a sort of modern Western way of thinking about literature, and so how you structure something is, 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 is we all have this you know, great literary theory, and those of you who teach or study English, English literature know all about English literary theory and Western literary theory, and that's fantastic and good stuff, fine. If you read, if you read the five books of Moses using that as your paradigm, you're like, this makes no sense. This is all just a big jumble mash of stuff. But when you read the way that people back in the ancient world tended to read, and when you start to see patterns, you start realizing, oh, there, it's a different way of thinking about literature that's going on here. There are dozens of patterns and connections that we could talk about. In fact, I was, I was thinking about running through some of those in Sunday school today. But, um, but the most important thing for understanding Leviticus is that Leviticus is at the heart of the Pentateuch. And the the point of the Pentateuch, I mean, after all, the problem at the beginning, man is kicked out from dwelling with God. The, the, The promise at the end, Israel is now going to live with God. The question at the heart of the book, how can we enter the presence of a living God, a holy God? So, just... 
uh, to focus on uh, zeroing in on Leviticus. So, you know, think about in the story of the Exodus, after they've left Egypt, there's, there's that spring of water. There'll be a spring of water again in Numbers 21. There's, and right next to those, there's instances of Israel getting water from the rock in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. Notice what I'm doing with my hands. I'm moving in towards the center. <laughs> there's two wars with the Amalekites in Exodus 18 and, or 17 and Numbers 14. There's two appointments of elders, Exodus 18, Numbers 11. There's two discussions of Moses with his father-in-law, Exodus 18, Numbers 10. And right at the middle is Israel's time at Mount Sinai, from Numbers 9, uh, Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. So the whole of Leviticus happens during this period when Israel is at Mount Sinai. In fact, the whole book of Leviticus takes place at Sinai. And we know exactly when the book of Leviticus take, takes place. There's, there's not a whole lot of events in the book, but the whole of the book is situated in between Exodus chapter 40, verse 17, which tells us the tabernacle was raised up on the first day of the first month of the second year. First day, so think, okay, first day, first month, second year. Numbers 1 tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month of the second year. So that means the whole of Leviticus takes place in a month. The first month of the second year. In other words, this is now exactly one year since they came out of Egypt. Exactly one year since they left Egypt. And so now they are... You know, so, and so when you think about the time sequence, when you think about what's happening, you know, Passover is going to be happening right at the heart of what all is going on here. Uh, so, but then within the book, I remember when I used to read Leviticus, it just it, it, it just read like a, just a jumble of laws, sort of like, okay, what's What's going on here? There's a clear shape. And actually, and again, there's a, there's a peak in the middle of our, of, of, our, of our chiasm because the first half of the book is all about how do you approach God? Chapters 1 through 15. It starts with the pre, how the priests are to conduct the sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. The institution of the priesthood itself in ordination of the priest, consecration of the priests in chapters 8 through 10. And dealing with the clean and unclean in daily life. How do you approach God? Chapters 11 to 15. And then at the very center is the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. Then it deals with, again, daily life issues of the holy and the profane in chapters 17 to 20. Legislation regarding priesthood, similar to the institution of the priesthood earlier, before concluding with the festivals, the organization of time. In, in other words, at the beginning, it's how do you approach God through blood. The second half of the book is about living in communion with God. It's about holiness. And at the very center of the book is the Day of Atonement. How do you draw near to God? And then once you are near, how do you live in communion with God? It would be a little bit overly simplistic to say the first half of the book's about justification, the second half of the book's about sanctification, but only a little bit simplistic. I mean, 
Some people have noticed the connection with Paul's words in Romans 5. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. That's very much of a first half of Leviticus sort of point. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Leviticus is about the the sacrifices of Israel, and the holiness of Israel. And at the very heart of the book is where sacrifice and holiness comes together in the Day of Atonement. And as we go through, we'll see, basically, without the sacrifices, holiness is impossible. But without holiness, the sacrifices are meaningless. And by the way, that's, that's, the, that's kind of the answer to David's problem in Psalm 51. Sort of, why will God not accept David's sacrifice well, because without holiness, what's the point of sacrifice? I mean, so it's David. That, that's, we'll see more as we keep going, but I, but just that you need you, you, offering sacrifices won't get you there without following up on it by living the way that God says. The corporate and individual sacrifices of Israel form the foundation for their corporate and individual practice of holiness. So in the book of Leviticus, God reveals clearly the central challenge for sinful humanity. How can God draw near to us without destroying us? If God is a consuming fire, if God is holy and we are not, then how can humanity come into his presence? The sacrifices of the Old Testament were designed to show us that the only way into God's presence is through blood. Now, it's also equally clear that the sacrifices are not magical. It's not just, hey, if you offer these sacrifices, you get in with God. That's why the second half of Leviticus is also important. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. So the first verse of Leviticus situates us here at the tent of meeting with the Lord speaking from the tent. And this reminds us of the previous chapter. It's why we sort of started with chapter 40 of Exodus, where the tabernacle was erected and consecrated, and then the glory of the Lord left Mount Sinai and filled the tabernacle. And and this reminds us of how God had created the world as a place where he might dwell with man. The garden in Eden was the holy of holies in the beginning. It was the place where God met with man. They walked together. Now, It's worth noting that in chapter 40 of Exodus, the consecration of the tabernacle uses a lot of language from the creation account. In Exodus 39, verse 43, And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. It's like, wait, and God saw all the work that he had done. And thus was completed all the work of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting. Thus was completed the heavens and the earth. When Moses had finished the work, when God had finished the work, Moses blessed them, God blessed them, to sanctify it and all its furnishings to sanctify it. All of these phrases are, in some cases, just taken verbatim from Genesis 1 and 2. Why does God make this connection for us? Because the tabernacle is the first place on earth since the garden where God promises to meet with man. The tabernacle is where God and man come back together again after man's rebellion. But Exodus ended with a problem. Did you hear it? In chapter 40, verse 34, the the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the cloud has covered the tent of meeting, and Moses was not able to 
to enter the tent of meeting. Wait, if this is where God meets with man, how come now man, even, even Moses, I mean, Moses is the mediator. Moses is the one who earlier in Exodus went up to the top of the mountain and spoke with God. He saw God's back. If anybody could go in to the Holy of Holies, it would be Moses. But he can't. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who shall enter into the Holy of Holies? Who can dwell with God? It's in that same context. And as far as we could tell, it's the same day. But the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Hey Moses, you can't come in right now. But let me tell you how you can come in. Now it's going to take me a little while, so get, you, get your stylus out and start you know, writing, that, writing this down. I want you to be able to draw near, but we need to deal with that whole sin and rebellion thing. Leviticus begins with Israel, God's firstborn son, standing outside the cherubim-guarded entry to Eden. After all, there are cherubim in the Holy of Holies, guarding the, guarding the way, and the glory of the Lord has filled the tabernacle. I mean, Moses can't go in. But now the God who dwells within begins to speak, revealing the way of entry, the way back to the tree of life. So really, I, mean, I think Morales says it well when he says, to understand Leviticus then is to understand the way of Yahweh, the path of life. How can you draw near to God? Well, you need offerings, chapters 1 through 7, and you need priests, chapters 8 through 10. Now, chapters 1 to 3, look at the first three offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Now, it's, it's I'll, I will admit, I mean, and actually I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed. Uh, I know as soon as I say this, you're, gonna, you're probably going to go do it. I'm just asking you not to. If, if you look at my old sermon series, I, I think I, you know, we need to just take that off, take that off the church webpage, or at least you know, replace it. I'm, just, I'm kind of embarrassed by what I said back then, because I, yeah. But... But part of it is that the meanings of the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering are not described in Leviticus. What are they doing? We really don't get told that. The sin offering and the trespass offering in chapters 4 and 5 receive much clearer definition, probably because sin and trespass offerings really don't have strong counterparts in the ancient world. So God needed to explain to Israel, here here are some distinctive things I'm asking you to do. Whereas the burnt offering, grain offering, and peace offering was found all throughout the ancient world. So everybody in the ancient Near East knew what a burnt offering meant, what a grain offering meant, what a peace offering. This, this was, everybody knew this. And those things that everybody knows, you don't need to write down. Thanks. So let's, let's walk through, because actually there are clues in our text. And then this is where I've benefited greatly from the work of others who when you really work through the rest of Scripture and look at all the examples and teachings from everywhere else, it starts to become really clear what these offerings are doing. But you just have to pay attention and know your whole Bible. And the first time I preached through Leviticus, I I didn't know my Bible as, yeah. But the general point in verse 2 is that the first thing is you, you must bring the sacrifice from your own flock or herd. Your offerings must cost you something. So this is where bringing a wild animal is not acceptable. Now, it's, notice that it says 
you must bring an offering from the herd or from the flock, by the end of the chapter, it'll refer to also burnt offerings of birds. Uh, and that's, that, that's the accommodation that God gives to the poor, that, that basically that even the poor can bring a burnt offering to the Lord. Uh, but as, as David will say centuries later, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. You cannot give God the leftovers. Part of the principle that God is teaching his people is that whatever is first in your life will receive the first of your time and your resources. For some people, family comes first, and it shows how everything is organized around family. For other people, their work comes first, and everything is organized around work. The point of sacrifice, the point of the offerings in Leviticus 1-7 through is to deal with sin and establish communion with God. And there's, there's an economic aspect of dealing with sin. Holiness requires sacrifice. And, that's, and throughout all of the Old Testament sacrifices were expensive. These were not... Whether, whether it's a bull... A bull is really expensive in the ancient world. We're talking... I mean, these. This would be like the, you know, I won't say. I won't. It's, it's not quite the Lamborghini and the Ferrari, but it's the a bull is. I mean, it's important for all of your work, and not to mention all of the, you know, the future offspring for your for your cows. But basically, the bull is a really important animal in the in the ancient world. This is a really expensive offering. So you may not be able to maintain the standard of living you desire. But if you belong to God, all that you have belongs to him as well. Where are your priorities? I mean, if, you, if you want to know what matters to you, well, look at what you spend your money on. Look at what you spend your time doing. Yahweh insists that the burnt offering must come from their own flock or herd. That the sacrifice must come from within we bring our own to god and the sacrifice must be brought to the priests verse 5 other nations had priests but israel's priests are are not sorcerers or diviners they were charged with with mediating between god his and and his people and so the the, the offerings are to be brought to the priest and it's it's worth it's worth noting as we saw in in judges um, it's not that israel was very good at this you know, God says you're supposed to bring it to the priest. You probably heard, remember from Judges, like, wait, th- there were all these times when you know Gideon offered you know, offerings and all these uh, the various judges offered offerings. It's like they never seemed to have a priest around. <laughs> exactly. Israel was not very good at doing what God said, but this is what God had said should be done. Now, it's worth noting that, and we'll see more of this as we go forward into Leviticus, but in, in Genesis, the, the family head had functioned as a priest. So Abraham, for instance, had been effectively the priest of his family. But in Exodus 24, Israel's young men served in that capacity. But then in Exodus 28, God set apart the house of Aaron for priestly service. In a sense, there's this narrowing of the priesthood from the family head in Abraham to a specific tribe in the Levites, to a specific family in Aaron, to a single individual in our Lord Jesus. And in Jesus, his, all who believe in him become a royal priesthood. Uh, but Israel had to learn about the specific calling and function of the priest. The priest's main task was to supervise the sacrificial system of Israel. 
And the, the three basic offerings were the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Now, it would be a little more literal to say the ascension offering, the tribute offering, and the peace offering. And these three offerings will go together. And next week we'll see how the three fit together because tonight we just have time for the first one. Uh, the burnt offering or the ascension offering. I think probably the reason why it doesn't get translated ascension offering is simply that sounds odd. But that's what it says that it is. The, and the burnt offering, the ascension offering, is the foundation of the whole sacrificial system. It's called the ascension offering because the whole animal is burnt. And by the way, when I call it the foundation of the whole sacrificial system, I mean that literally. It's not just, it's not just sort of metaphorically the foundation. But when you think about what goes on when you, make, when you bring offerings, the first thing that you bring is the burnt offering. So when you have, if you have the altar, you're going to have the burnt offering first, and then other offerings will be put on top of it. So when I say that's the foundation of the sacrificial system, literally, it's the foundation. All the other offerings are literally built on it, whether drink offering, grain offering, uh, peace offerings, other offerings will be put on top of this. As this one is burning, other things get added to it. So just when I say foundation, I really just mean foundation. <laughs> um, but it's called the ascension offering because... As the whole animal is burnt, the animal ascends to God in the smoke. Uh, the, the word translated offering is korban, which means to draw near. So the burnt offering is, maybe just, the ascension offering is just literally, it's an ascension drawing near to God. That's what the phrase means. When you offer a burnt offering, you are symbolically drawing near to the deity that you're worshiping. When you're saying, we are here to worship you, we are here to draw near to you. That's, and, this was, and this was something that you find, I mean, this is, this is not particularly unique to Israel. Every ancient Near Eastern culture had some sort of burnt offering that they would burn an animal and, they, and when the idea that they are, they are coming before their God. They are here to worship their God. And it's just what God does with it that's different from the nations around them. And the animal was to be without blemish. The prophet Malachi rebuked the priests and the people in Malachi 1 saying, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer lame and sick animals, is that not evil? Offer such to your governor. Will he accept you or be favorable to you? you know, what do you offer to God? If you're offering to God this sort of sick animal, the picture here, if this is the best you have to offer to God, sort of, this, the idea is you have this unblemished sacrifice that is, that is to ascend to God. And so if you're bringing a, a sick, lame animal, uh, is sort of it's the same, like, it'd be the same thing as if you brought this to the, to the, to the uh, this, you know, Brought it to your governor. Hey, I got a present for you. It's a three-legged lamb. It's like, eh, so what are you saying, buddy? Do you offer the best you have or do you offer the leftovers? But notice that the whole animal is burnt, uh, which suggests a, a sort of a symbolic consumption of the, the food by God. It's why it's sometimes referred to as a food offering. The, the scriptures never suggest that God is hungry and needs to be fed. But rather, the point is that God is the one who acts in the burnt offering. Uh, and in fact, 
several times in Scripture. God sends fire from heaven. One of the most famous being Elijah at Mount Carmel. God sends fire from heaven to consume the burnt offering. But the ordinary burnt offering was designed to be a symbolic representation of what God had done and and what he would do in Jesus Christ in that we would draw near to him. When God sends fire from heaven to consume the burnt offering, he is saying, yes, I receive this ascension and bring it to myself. It's why the Israelite must bring a male without blemish for the burnt offering. The, the perfect sacrifice must be an unblemished male. God is looking for a holy son who will be blameless and pure. And that's where, that's, that's where it's, you know, if you want, you know, why did it have to be a male animal? Well, because it's pointing forward to Jesus. And the worshiper must lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And when it says lay, it's actually, he's lean his hand. This is a pressing down. Some have argued that's a transference of sin from the worshiper to the animal. But that doesn't actually make sense of what this sacrifice is doing, what this offering is doing. I I used to think that the burnt offering was sort of about transference of sin. But the thing that bugged me about that was that the ancient cultures around Israel never thought of it that way. And I couldn't find anything in the Bible that actually said it. <laughs> so I was like, huh, that probably means, I mean, if God, if God didn't tell them that this is what it meant, then how could they have known what it meant? So I kept reading. And this is where when you start watching more carefully and start thinking, okay, everybody seems to know what an ascension offering is in the Bible. So what's going on in the ascension offering? What does the animal do on behalf of the worshiper? Ascend to God through death. There is, it's, it, Leviticus calls it an atonement. A, 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 the English word there is an at-one-ment there can be, if, if the purpose of this is to bring man and God together, how does, how does it do that? Well, it does that through the animal ascending in the smoke to God through death. Israel is not merely delivered from death, but through death. Dying to the old life in Egypt in the process and in preparation for life with God in the land of Canaan. It's, as I was looking at that, I was like, huh. Moses could well have said, since you have been raised with the ascension offering, seek the things that are above where the ascension offering is at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with the ascension offering in God. I mean, that's, I mean, you just replace ascension offering with Christ and you've just got Colossians 3, 1 through 4. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what Paul's saying. If, you know, now, the problem was Moses couldn't finish with verse 4 when the ascension offering, who is your life, appears. <laughs> it's like Moses couldn't have said that because the ascension offering was a bull or a lamb and it just stayed dead. And so it wasn't going to appear again. But when that to which the ascension offering points appears, <laughs> then you also will appear with him in glory. But then watch what, what happens to the blood in verse 5. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
we're told in Genesis that, that the life is in the blood. Blood represents the soul or the life of the worshiper. And so think about the laying on of hands meant that the worshiper identified with the animal so that the death of the animal became his own and the ascension of the animal in the smoke became his own. Which means that when the blood of the animal is thrown against the sides of the altar, that means that the worshiper is being, being brought into contact with God's presence at the altar. God and man are dwelling together through the blood of the sacrifice. The burnt offering clearly indicates an acknowledgement of sin. So it's not about transferring the sin to the animal, but it's rather, it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of sin and saying, the only way to ascend to God is through death. I don't want to die. <laughs> and so the transfer of sin, I'll, I'll just forecast, this does happen at the Day of Atonement. Uh, but in that case, the animal is sent out into the wilderness. In this case, the point of the birth offering is to draw near. In the ascension offering, the Israelite acknowledges that he is not able to ascend the, God's holy mountain himself. And so he must ascend through a blameless substitute. And so then, as it, uh, also in verse 5, it says that, that he shall kill the, the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar. Notice that here in Leviticus, the, the slaughtering of the animal is not the priest's job, but the worshiper's job. So in Leviticus, that's where we start. By the time we get to the book, later, later on in the book of Kings, uh, actually, in, like for instance, in, in 1 Samuel, we, have, we still have instances of worshippers slaughtering animals. But once you get into the period, later in the period of Kings, and especially, we, we hear a lot about this in Chronicles, uh, it's the priests who are, who are killing and skinning the animals. Uh, you know, Second Chronicles 35 says, All the Passover lambs were slaughtered by the priests in the days of King Josiah. Ezekiel 44 has the priests slaughtering all the burnt offerings and sacrifices for the people. And part of this, this change seems to happen at the temple when the, as they, they developed the practices of the court of the priests, which was considered part of the holy place, and so only the priests could go in there. But part of the reason I highlight it here is just to say, notice that something as significant in Old Testament worship as who kills the animal changed over time. So it's you know, sometimes when you know, so we're, we're good, regular principle people, yeah, we only do what God tells us to do. Well, God told the, the worshiper to do it, so how did they change it over to the priests? Where did God say to change that? We're no, there's nothing in Scripture that says God said to change that. Uh, but God certainly approved of it. I mean, when Ezekiel declares in chapter 44, 11, that, that this is the, to be the practice, that God approves of it. But it, it, this, is, uh, it, this may not have been the exact proof text they used in the Westminster Confession, but when the Confession says, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed, this is a classic case study in that. The point is, the animal must be slaughtered. Now, is it, is it always have to be just, the, 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 is it the worshiper that does it, or can the priest do it for the worshiper? That would be a circumstance. 
not and it's not one of the essential items uh, it's so that's it's just worth noting for uh, for what it's worth but then Aaron's sons would arrange the pieces of the burnt offering on the altar um, and we, we heard we heard we hear from Exodus that the the, the fire hearth was about uh, 400 square feet so uh, th- that's a that's a big that's a big altar and there's lots of room on this for a lot of meat. And the arrangement of the pieces on the altar is, is reminiscent of a meal. It's, you're, you're sort of, you're cutting it up into pieces. I mean, sure, in one sense you could argue, well, it burns faster that way. If you put a whole bowl on an altar, that's gonna take a long time to burn. No, sure. But also, the way, it's, it's designed to, in a sense, look like a meal. It should remind us of how we, in, in the, in the Exodus, God is going camping with his, with his people. Because they they're they're living in tents, and he says, "Build a tent for me." They're cooking on their little camp stoves, and God says, "Build a build a a big camp stove for me." <laughs> I mean, there's there's a way in which that's what God is doing here. He's saying, "I am going to go camping with my people," um, and that's why. Yeah, but then it's it's not because God is hungry. God doesn't need any of this to eat. But it's because God alone can bring us near to himself. He must consume the burnt offering and its smoke arises as a pleasing aroma to God. When God smells the sacrifice, he is pleased that Israel has drawn near to him by ascension through death and has trusted him for their salvation. Now, Verses 10 to 13 give the same basic provisions in the case of bringing a male sheep or a goat. And verses 14 to 17 then provide an option for the poor. Uh, Doves and pigeons were the domesticated birds of the day. A poor Israelite might have no herd or flock, but he could at least afford to bring a bird. So, So when you think about what's going on here, well, the wealthy could bring a bull. Ordinary folk could bring a sheep or a goat, but the poor are not excluded from drawing near to God. Because how would how would you bring how would you bring a, a bird? Well, actually, this we, we know this from later on, but probably fairly early on, there would have been birds sort of available for sale right outside the the, the, the temple area or earlier, earlier, probably the tabernacle, so that the poor would be able to afford to bring an offering to God, but. So the poor are not excluded from drawing near to God. But notice that the poor are expected to bring something that costs them. They, they, it, it, the, the widow's might is, is, is praised because she gave the very little that she had. I mean, that's, it's, she trusted God. You know, birds are cheap, but they're not free. And each one should bring what he is able and all of a sudden you start realizing that Paul's principles of giving in the New Testament sound an awful lot like Moses' principles in the Old Testament. It's like, huh, they're actually, they, he understands, he's simply applying the same basic principles to a different economic situation in the first century. And by now it should be really clear <laughs> that Christ is the ascension offering. He is the one who makes atonement for us. He is the one who brings us and has opened the way for us to dwell with God and brings us on that way and that we might 
ascend the hill of the Lord. As Hebrews 10 says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And so we draw near because Jesus has brought us to God. Now, I want to connect this to something I said this morning about that sometimes sometimes we don't feel it. We don't feel very near to God. And sometimes our understanding of these things is really way out of the... We're not, we're not understanding it. We're not feeling it. We got, this isn't about do you, understand, do you understand it. This is also not about do you feel it. Part of the point of the, of the Ascension offering is that this is, you might say, objectively what the Ascension offering does. What does Christ do? Christ brings us to God. When, when Paul speaks to the Ephesians, he, he says that you have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you might, you might think, well, I, I don't feel like I'm in the heavenly places. And you might think, I don't even understand what that means. Paul's like, no, no, If you're in Christ, that's where you are. <laughs> that's who you are. If you're in, I, I remember when I was in seminary, there was a, we, we had, there was this, this outside speaker who was, who was, who was telling us, oh, the, the greatest revival in the, in the, in the, in the history of the world is, is, is just around the corner and you'd better orient your whole life and ministry around it. I was scheduled to preach in chapel next. So I preached from Ephesians 1. And I preached. The greatest revival in the history of the church happened 2,000 years ago, and you'd better orient your whole life and ministry around it. <laughs> because what did Jesus do? Jesus has brought us to God. He has opened the way, and he didn't just open the way and said, good luck, hope you make it. No, he brought us. We have died with Christ we have been raised with Him. He is the ascension offering in whom we come to the Father. We come to the right hand of God in Jesus. And yes, I hope with all my heart that more and more you feel this and that you understand this and that you believe this. And you. But this is what Jesus has done. It's not just sort of a, well, you know, if, you know if, you, if, if you... No, no, this is what Jesus has done. The Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, the Jesus who died, who, who, by the way, you still can't find his body there because he was raised from the dead, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. That Jesus is the one who now has brought you to himself that you might dwell before God. That's just true. And yes, now let's work on understanding this and believing it and feeling it and living because that's where he calls us to be. So let's ask him for help on that. Oh Lord, have mercy. Because we, we, marvel, we marvel at your kindness. We marvel at your faithfulness. We marvel at your, at your love. And as, as, we, as we see in your word these, these, these great and mighty deeds that you have wrought, and as we see what you have taught us about, about how Jesus has done what you, what you promised, that he's brought us to you, Lord, help us. Help us to believe these things. Help us to, to understand them better and to, and to live as those who have been drawn near by the blood of Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would you'd help us in, in all the situations of life, that as, as, we, as we deal with, 
with those around us who are afflicted and suffering. Help us to love the way that you have loved us. As we walk before you as, as, as your children, draw, help us to draw near to you as, as children to a father ready and able to help us. Teach us, Lord, the, how, how we can humble ourselves before you and trust you in the midst of these times. Have mercy, Lord, on those who are suffering and afflicted. Have mercy on those who are, who are, who are tempted and, and facing trials and, uh, and afflictions. Help us, Lord, to, to love as you have loved us. For Jesus' sake, amen.